0: Welcome to Our Seven Neighbors, Season 3, Birth of a Chicago Civil Rights Movement, Stories from the Archives, brought to you by the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary. I am Kim Schultz, producer of the podcast. We're glad you're here. Each week, we pair an interview from the Jesse Jackson Oral Archive Project with a special guest doing the work of justice today to reflect and engage racial equity work then and now. But before we get to that discussion, let's bring in our host, Reverend Brian Smith.
1: Thanks, Kim. For this episode, we welcome Mr. Jim Seidler, grocery sales manager for Jewel Foods. Jim plays a key role in identifying, recruiting, and supporting minority vendors and partners, especially from the black community. I look forward to being in discussion with him. But before we get to that conversation, let's go to the archives. Let's take a listen to this short clip from an interview with Reverend Martin Deppi. Reverend Deppi and I spoke a few months back for over an hour as part of our Jackson Oral History Archive project. It was such a joy speaking with Reverend Deppi and spending time with him and his wife. Reverend Deppi was instrumental in implementing the Chicago Breadbasket Project and served faithfully on the south side of Chicago during a period of great turmoil and transition. He was the key negotiator for the Jewel Foods Partnership Covenant, which stands to this day. Let's take a listen to
2: some of what he said. King made the decision to come to Chicago after looking at several cities. He'd been fundraising across the North. The movement was in the South. It was a Southern movement, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. I mean, that's where the voting rights and all of that emerged. So both the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65 were rooted in in the events in the South. But King would travel to the northern cities and pick up the bucks. I mean, this is where he fundraised. But he saw the ghettos. He saw the terrible situation in the northern cities. And he felt called to deal with that. And his brothers and sisters said, No, Dr. King, we can't do that. We can't do that. We can't expand that far and he said we have to and uh, Bayard Rustin said Mayor Daley going to kill you. Mayor Daley's going to wipe you out King and Bayard was a good friend and an important friend to King but King said I'm sorry I'm going to go north. So he looked at Philadelphia, New York and some other cities and chose Chicago and he chose the beast. I mean he, he just decided he was going to deal with Daley and if he could crack Daley could crack the north. So it was a a symbolic thing in a way. He felt comfortable with the Mississippi blacks because he'd been involved in all kinds of protests and events in Jackson. So he knew the black folk in Mississippi, and many of them had come to Chicago, and he was assuming he could get support from the black community in Chicago. And they were too depressed. They were too caught in a system they were survivalists they weren't able to give much more than they were already giving to raise their family and King misread that he just misread the level of support he could get here which is so sad and he was promised students would come from other places and we never built, the, it was called the Chicago Freedom Movement, and it was a combination of Triple C-O, the local group, and King, when we called him here. Together, the two groups met and formed the Chicago Freedom Movement, which was a combination of King's group and al Rabi and the Triple C-O. That was the group that then moved off the education focus, which had been the original focus, and shifted it to housing. And the slums was the big Shout was the big slogan in the slums. They thought that that would bring in the Mississippi blacks, the the black west side, particularly. And they couldn't really get the support they needed. We made some gains and King finally ended up with this (sighs) summit agreement with Mayor Daley in which Mayor Daley promised all kinds of things and kept nothing. King should not have believed him. So it was kind of a win and loss. I mean, symbolically, the Chicago movement was very important, but short-term, it was a loss. But out of it came Breadbasket, and then the Metropolitan, Committee opened Metropolitan Housing Committee, which worked on open housing for many decades after that. So the housing group and the Breadbasket operation were the two legacies of dr king in chicago that were long
1: term so we started with education we shifted to housing then we went to Bread basket. what was Bread basket all about
2: well triple co and sclc got together and had their meetings and and their retreats up at lake geneva and the C O had a lot of secularists as well as church people. Now, down south, the movement was centered in the church. But when King came here, he found a church was not the center. It was a much more diverse group. And there were a number of people in C O that were suspicious of the church, and the Silent Six, and the conservative black pastors, J.H. Jackson, and the National Baptist Convention and his five million members. So that really made it very difficult. And King had such great perceptions. He saw that they wouldn't really relate well to the black church, but he knew the black church. So he took Breadbasket, which we could talk about, coming from Leon Sullivan's selective withdrawal campaigns. In Philadelphia which King saw took to Atlanta was successful in Atlanta it got the name bread basket because in Atlanta they started with bread they went through the bakeries and the pastors negotiated for jobs and if the bakeries didn't agree to increase the the number of blacks in the bakery they'd stop eating their bread so it was really the use of the power of the pulpit and the, the action of the pew and the parishioners that brought several million dollars to the community and King took that program, which was working at Atlanta, to Chicago and said, Hey, they don't trust the black church. I'll give the black church its own project. So he brought Breadbasket to Chicago as a project for the black church to be complementary to the the whole Chicago Freedom Movement and, and the slum stuff but he thought the black church could do its own thing and they'd be fine that way. And it worked. He held this meeting on the south side of Jubilee Temple and my bishop out of unease and unfortunately probably cowardice didn't respond to the written invitation of Dr. King. It was mostly to black pastors but also judicatory heads like my bishop And he didn't even have the sense to send in his place one of our 20 fine African-American pastors. He sends me a white and still green pastor in an all-black church, predominantly black church at Gresham at that point. So I got in on the ground floor. I was at the birth meeting of Operation Breadbasket at Jubilee Temple and I was sitting behind a tall man who stood up, turned around and said, Good morning. My name is Dr. King and it was Daddy King. It was Martin's father. He's twice as big as his son. Big, hulking, handsome, strong man. And he had come because King knew that there was opposition among the black pastors. He knew that in Chicago, there was a lot of opposition to him. And so he said, Daddy, come and help me. Because his dad had a good relationship with all the Baptist conventions. So that was very important. He brought his dad to come and assist him in building this new network Operation Breadbasket. We had, I think, almost 300 black pastors, there were two or three of us white, that were in that room when we put Breadbasket together and we accepted King's challenge to engage in this project. So you had this diverse
1: group of individuals, male, female, white, black. Yes. It was very diverse. And you all were engaged in what we call selective patronage. That was the whole basis for Breadbasket. Could you talk about the selective patronage system and why it was successful?
2: Well, it began in Philadelphia with Reverend Leon Sullivan, who was a creative black pastor who wanted to help his community, his parish, and he could see the great disparity in jobs, that his parishioners couldn't advance economically at all because they were in all the low-paying jobs. So he created this idea that if they would go to some of the businesses in the area that hired black people who could be challenged, and if they had a product that the black community used, that his parishioners could, in fact, Make a decision about buying or not buying a product. If I can't work here, I won't give you my dollar. I mean, it was that concept that he had. If you won't respect me, then you won't get my dollar. If you won't hire me, I won't buy your product. So this concept grew, and he put together a group of pastors and churches that would implement this selective buying campaign, and it was very successful. In a matter of two or three, four years, they secured hundreds of jobs in these consumer industries, foods and beverages. And Dr. King saw this from Atlanta, and he had Leon Sullivan come down and speak to his board of directors of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He had him speak to them and to the board and staff. And they then adopted a project called Bread Basket. We were called Breadbasket because of the beginning with bread. We started with milk. We went through the milk industry and the soft drinks, but we still used the word bread. And bread for us meant, a slice of bread meant uh, putting bread on the table in the form of a steady job. That was the Breadbasket goal.
1: I'd like to now welcome Jim Seidler of Jewel Foods. As I mentioned earlier, Jim is key in recruiting vendors from the Black community. I think he will find a lot to discuss based on the archive interview with Reverend Deppi. And for disclosure purposes, I should mention that Jim has played a significant role in supporting my own family business, Moz Best Incorporated, an authorized food vendor with Jewel Foods for the past 15 years. Welcome, Jim. How are you? Hey, very well, Brian. Thank you for inviting me to this call. And thank you for being here. I'd like to mention to you, as I was uh, communicating with my mother to get an idea of just how long we've been working with Jewel, she said, you know, uh, Brian, it's funny. I was thinking about Jim in my meditation time this morning. She says, you know, that doesn't happen, obviously, very often. And she says, and now you're calling me about this because my mom really had no idea of the work that I was doing. I had only shared it with my father. So uh, I think that's an interesting way to start the day, knowing that for some reason, my mom had you on her mind.
3: <laughs> well, that's nice to hear. That's that's nice to hear about that. Well, fantastic family, your dad and your mom. I mean, they from the time I met them, and it was about 15 years ago, Brian, and they presented their line of products. And I mean, you just couldn't say no, just the <laughs> hard work, the flavor, the attention to detail was just over the top. So we had to try to make something
1: happen. Along with the interview, some time back, I gave you an article photo with a caption dated from April 28th, 1967. And on that photo, there were some prominent figures, including Donald Perkins, who was then the president of Jewel Foods, and Fred Barnes, who was the personnel manager for Jewel. Reverend Stroy Freeman, Reverend Clay Evans, Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr., and Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And this photo captures a moment when Jewel committed to hiring 500 black people to work for its stores. This is 1967. And Reverend Martin Depi, the speaker in in, uh, the podcast, was the lead negotiator for that agreement. I'm wondering how it feels for you to uh, see that photo and think about it in year 2023. Well, I'll tell you what, it, was,
3: it sounds to me, since I, I was just born then, but it sounds to me like Jewel Osco was standing uh, above the times at that point. And I can tell you that today we still feel the same way. We need to be part of our communities. We need to help communities grow. And along with that, we very, very much try to support either the minority population at, at our stores, but notably the minority black business owners on the shelves at Jewel Osco. And that's been longstanding as far as long as I've been at Jewel for 35 years. We are part of the community and we do our best to try to support that. And either by the employment of people in the communities or, again, by that business owner on the shelf. Now, we can't have every business that's been available on the shelf, but we certainly try. And it's been very satisfying. And, and I, you can tell when you walk into a store and you see those products on the shelves that you don't see in some of the other conventional food retailers, that Jewel Osco is part of the community. And that's how we go to market. Being local is one of our number one pillars of going to market here at Jewel Osco.
1: Both of us were born around that time. So prior to our communications, were you aware of this powerful legacy that you are a part of and that you actually helped preserve? So not specifically to that level, but I can tell you
3: from the day I stepped foot at Jewel, it was an inclusive environment. We were to be Everybody is the same and we can do whatever, whatever we can do. We can support ourselves. And it's really been, you know, it's a big company, but when it comes right down to it, we talk the
1: talk and walk the walk. When I met with Martin Depe and when I discovered this news, I actually gave him some of our products and I thanked him and he, he really loved the coffee cake and the rolls. But I was so appreciative and I was a bit surprised That I was not aware of this legacy. And even as I communicated with some of the other leaders that work with Bread Basket, one of them shared with me that he knew the founder of, uh, I think it's Mumbo Barbecue Sauce. Mumbo, sure. Yeah. David Wallace is his name. And he was one of the three co developers and founders with Bread Basket in Chicago. And he talked about Father Mumbo. And how they used to eat his ribs. So I guess he had a you know, he had a restaurant. I was unaware of that. Yeah, they yeah, they had a restaurant. And I were I did not
3: know that was set up before my time and I worked with Allison Collins, who is his daughter. She holds that legacy every single day and she's fantastic to work with.
1: Yeah, you know, I've seen her and then to talk to people that knew her father, and I think it, it would be a good opportunity in the future for us to bring the people together, but I showed David Wallace a bottle of the sauce. And he says, oh yeah, I know about them. You know, for him, it's, it was sort of a matter of fact, but he was bringing the past and he was so happy, Jim. I want you to know that. He was so happy because, you know, I would always get a basket full of the Black Vendor products and I would take pictures. And so I showed him that and I said, hey, look at your work. And we recently honored him at CTS. And I do the same with Martin Depi because we inherit their work but you talked about it earlier. We don't really know how difficult it was to deal with that, to, you know, to have active resistance. Like right now you come to us and you say, hey, I want your products in the stores. Or, hey, we want black people working for us. But back then it was a different ball game. So I wonder, Martin Debbie talked about selective patronage in terms of supporting stores that support the community. So if I buy from your outlet, your outlet should do things to try to help my community. And you and I, you and I talked about that, how you know, it's not just the vendors, but even hiring people. And, and I'm wondering.
3: Yeah, I'll just speak to, I'm, I hope I'm on the same page as you, but as far as we see it, one of the big things that we're doing by supporting the minority business community, and it's the black community, but it's very much past that. It's a woman owned businesses, it's Asian, Hispanic, you name it, we're trying to go there. But in each one of those transactions, you're helping not only the individual brand themselves, but there's in essence a gain for who they're employing. Then hopefully, and, and this is probably a small part of it for Jewel, but are people frequenting Jewel because of that patronage for these brand communities, which I do believe it for these brands. And I do believe it's true. And, and there's a lot of word of mouth that goes around it. I would also tell you that we kind of humbly do it, Brian. I don't think we get out there and pound our chest that this is happening in this fashion. I mean, this is an unusual call for us, but we do it because we know it's the right thing for us to be local to Chicago. We are Chicago and we're owned by a big corporate company that's not local, but Jewel is local and we want to be that way. So everything we're doing to support the small business owners in Chicago is really supporting of... Anybody that they employ, anybody that chops at a jewel, anybody that we can help
1: fill their grocery baskets with quality foods. One thing that stuck out for me when communicating with Martin Depi was what you just voiced, this sentiment that it's not something special, but it's something normative. And obviously, Martin Depi is white. He was a white Methodist minister who went to a predominantly, well, it was a white community when he started. And then literally overnight, he said it became black. Mm -hmm. He remained committed and he shared how he watched the community change. He didn't change because he, of course, he's a minister and not, not that a minister would, would make you be loving towards black people because we've seen the opposite, but, but still he felt the need to be a loving pillar in that community without necessarily receiving any accolades but I think in our current era, those who may not be from a particular community or in, in this case, if you, you're not black, you still have an opportunity to be an ally. And I would call you that, Jim, an ally, somebody who respects the community as a normative act And not because okay, you're trying to become a savior, so on and so on. No, no,
3: no, sir, no, sir. Everybody should have an opportunity, and and I just so happen to be in a spot where I can help people get an opportunity. I'll also tell you, Brian, that in those same conversations with folks, I need their support too. It's not a sole opportunity. I mean, we ask that the community be part of the events and part of support their brands through Jewel Osco. So it is a partnership. It's not just hey, you can be on the shelf and then we're done with that. It's really about making sure that you're keeping your product lines alive. And man, when a customer sees a product, a person that owns a brand selling their product as a brand owner in a store, I mean, how much more can you ask for as a shopper? I mean, that's so enlightening. And you know, it's just one of those fun things that I don't see other retailers do. So that just didn't come over just a couple of years time either. That's really been I've been in the merchandising team for over 20 years. This has been about a 20-year project, if not more, to try to develop a process that works from inception of brand on the shelf to maintaining that brand, because that's probably the biggest thing that we have to do is maintain it.
1: You know, I can attest to that, obviously, as an authorized vendor. But then also, we had a very unique experience. Of course, you know, in 2020, we had COVID, but then there was something very unique that happened on the south side of Chicago in the days following the George Floyd tragedy. I want to bring that up because there's no secret that all of your south side stores were severely impacted. Yeah. And there were tremendous losses. But we saw not just Jewel, but we saw the community join forces with you. That's true. And you, you know, could you talk about what happened? Because I, I distinctly remember going to uh Seventy Sixth and Stony, and I remember that store.
3: Seventy-fifth and stony, yep. Yeah, that store was probably the worst hit. You know, Brian, it's interesting that, that I don't have the full detail around everything that happened, but I can tell you that there was a thought that it was the community that did that. And my feeling is what I heard from the group is it really wasn't the community in there, or there was it was outside of the community. It was people that were outside of the community but those stores were hurt bad. They were hurt bad. They were to the point where do you keep them open or keep them closed? But I can tell you in all honesty, when we went to open those doors, the community was there helping us clean those doors up. They were in there sweeping and mopping and helping us get the fixtures cleaned up. And there were people from the homes around those stores in our stores helping us. And do you think if you were going to go in and loot a store that you're going to come back and help clean it up. No, no, that was true. We want to help. And then when it goes that awry, you have to ask yourself, should I stay or should I go? And Jewel said, no, we will stay. We'll remodel all those stores. We invested. We rebuilt all those stores. We, put, we remodeled them. We, we reinvested in the structure of the stores, the, the core, the flooring, the refrigeration, And we opened up an even better store than when it closed. And they were still, they were actually, many of those stores were remodeled a couple of years prior to the pandemic. So we had to go back in and reinvest. But Jewel Osco said, we need to be in the community. And those are very difficult food environments, meaning there's just not a lot of stores to shop from. And we just couldn't, there's no way that we were going to allow those stores to close. And looking back at it, it was probably one of the best things we ever did. And the customer said, yes. The customer said, yes, they've been very, uh, very good to us there. And we're just thankful we've got the opportunity to sell to those shoppers.
1: Yeah, I was there for the grand reopening for that specific store. I don't get to spend as much time as I'd like with my dad now, but I distinctly remember right after COVID, I was there with my dad for a grand reopening. The store was beautiful. Yep, And I had a good feeling because all of the stores around and maybe some are still boarded up, and you know, let's talk about that. When you see other businesses that are leaving the South Side of Chicago, what does that say about the culture of Jewel? You've talked about it, and i this is not a commercial for Jewel, but you know, it's it's very difficult when you see these guys leaving. No, you don't. You
3: don't want to see people have limited options for food, and you just never do. But for us, it's the long standing. We want to be part of the community. And those stores are true neighborhood stores, Brian. They really are. And they have a long legacy of being part of that community for holidays and birthdays and communions and you name it, confirmations. And I don't think Jewel Convision not being part of that space. And as these other companies leave, I mean, it's hard to say what the real reason is. But for us, no matter what, up and down, we've been there. And that's one thing I guess we're very proud of we've been able to stay there. And remember, that includes employing hundreds of people in each one of those stores. So even that, if you're thinking as a business owner, as a big corporation, how do you exit the employment of people for that area as well? So I think our senior leadership really sees the value of what it's past food. It's having a community center for people to go. And in fact, Brian, you probably, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but over there on uh, 94th and Ashland, that was another store that we got hit pretty hard there and remodeled. And we actually have a community center there, too. For We built a community center for public use in the building. So that was another thing that we said, that the city of Chicago, we're here and we're making it available, making space available to the community. So there was multiple stores there that are doing great now. I think the customer said thank you because we stayed open.
1: I think that is really what Dr. King and those early pioneers were seeking, which is why they had a covenant. There was no legal there was no legal agreement per se, but it was a desire on the part of the activists from the SCLC and the breadbasket movement to have a covenant relationship where where you say, "Listen, I am going to commit to the community" And I'm going to do it not necessarily because I'm afraid. And of course, you know, there was another side to that whole breadbasket system and the patronage system. But really, the goal was to have a mutual relationship. And Martin Depe was so emphatic about, I mean, if you talk to him now, he speaks as if he's ready to get out on the streets and work. (laughs) Yeah, he's passionate without question. I'm wondering, are there challenges... Just in general, in the diversity and equity industry arena, and of course, we know the recent Supreme Court ruling, we're not sure how that's going to impact businesses and other organizations. But are there challenges that you see besides that ruling in terms of your own capacity as a business institution to support minority businesses? So,
3: Brian, to me, at least I can speak for Jewel Osco. It comes down to culture, and each business has a culture that it lives by. And so for us it's been part of our culture. There's no questions there's no questions asked. It's you know how do we support local. And I think there's many businesses just like that, but it comes down to is your does your culture look at diversity and inclusion? Because if it doesn't, that's where you run into those roadblocks. But if if you have a culture of diversity and inclusion, I think those walls are knocked down. Now that doesn't mean you're just just because of that, you're on the shelf. I mean, there's gotta be other factors that are part of it. There's that desire, there's that burn to be able to sell more. But at the end of the day, I believe that regardless of what the government says is if your business has got a culture behind it to support local and community and diversity, I think that those those move forward and it's gonna be eclectic, wouldn't you agree?
1: Yes, and I'm wondering, because I think you're a dreamer like me, I've seen your work, do you have any dreams any aspirations for the kind of work that you're doing, both in terms of jewel and even beyond, because honestly, Jim, I see this as a case study. It already is a case study of how you can do this, but do you have any dreams you know do you say, man, I wish that I could see this happen?
2: well,
3: you know one of the things that we always speak to is that, and again, I just because I live jewel, we have what thirty thousand grocery items on the shelf and I always speak to the leadership. They speak back to me about it because they're in full agreement. Like We have 50 local business owners on the shelf, black business owners, 45, and then pass that with woman-owned business and Latin-owned and so forth, Asian-owned. But if you put that number and throw it up against the broad base of things, it's really the right thing to do. It's not detrimental to our business. It delights our customers. And why wouldn't other businesses think about
1: it in the same fashion? I do want to say this, Jim, thank you so much for continuing this work. We have to do a better job of bridging and telling the story.
3: Yeah, I would agree. I, like I said, we we really kind of humbly go by. We're not out there advertising around it. We try to do you know in-store kind of things, but we just want to be local and we want to be proud of what we do, but we're, we're just not cocky about it. That That's not what it's meant to be. It's really meant to be exactly what we started with. It's supporting our communities, not only in a selling fashion, but how do we get more people employed and really kind of be productive for the total Chicagoland marketplace.
1: Jim, thank you so much for taking this time to be with us today.
3: Brian, it's been a pleasure and I look forward to speaking to you very
0: soon. Another great conversation. Hope you enjoyed that. All our episodes can be found at OurSevenNeighbors.com, brought to you by the Chicago Theological Seminary. Please listen to our other episodes if you haven't yet, featuring other important figures in the Chicago movement. You might be surprised. And please join us next time for another look back and forward with Our Seven Neighbors, birth of a Chicago civil rights movement, stories from the archives. Thanks for listening.